I'm always pushing at boundaries. <clears throat> Excuse me while I <clears throat> neigh like a horse. I'm always pushing at boundaries because in my experience there is no such thing really as a boundary. It's funny, if you look at the um, history of Western thought, it's very much contained within this idea of the particulate. The idea that we can wrap something um, almost sort of uh, like we wrap um, vegetables sometimes, well, maybe this won't carry for all audiences, but certainly in Colombia, they individually wrap um, vegetables and they individually wrap hot dog sausages, for example, in plastic. Bit of a crazy thing to do. But if you think about all of the products that we buy in a supermarket, apart from the fresh veg and the fresh meat section and the delicatessen, everything's wrapped up in something, isn't it? Packaged as a particle. I call it a particle because there's a sense in which it has a certain degree of integrity as an object. And in the case of the supermarket, those object, objects also have um, some sort of uh, brand placed upon them through the packaging. It's a representation of the product through the packaging. Now, what I find interesting about all of this is that you can look at any object in the world <clears throat> and you can draw a circle around it and say, there we are, well, circle, it doesn't have to be a circle, any shape you like, around the object and say, there we are, that is an object. As though we were taking some clean film and putting it around every object that ever existed. And that's effectively what we do. We sort of hermetically seal our concepts of different things in these packages. But really, <laughs> in my view of the world, I don't think that's the way that the world really exists. It's a convenient shorthand for our time scale and space scale of living, if I can call it that, by which I mean we live in units of time that are divided ultimately into seconds, but familiar with minutes, 60 seconds, hours, which is 60 minutes, and then days, which are 24 of these um, of these hours conveniently 
just as an aside, I mean, it's quite, quite odd. I think we chose a second as a unit of time because it was close to the heartbeat, 60 beats per minute. And yet somehow we've massed this up in a fairly decimalized way, fairly decimalized, because we've got 60 of those heartbeats going into a minute and then 60 of those collections of 60 heartbeats going into an hour and then 24 of those going into a day and it seems to work quite well that we have that number of seconds in total in a day of heartbeats haven't done the maths on that but whatever 60 by 60 by 24 is in terms of seconds I think it will be somewhere around somewhere around 80,000 seconds I think per day why though why those number of heartbeats strange isn't it so there's no real reason for it but somehow it fits in with our sort of there's a sense of um, I don't know what you'd call it <coughs> a sense of tidiness about it I suppose you know 60 and then another 60 that's quite nice going into an hour why why 60 uh, seconds in a minute though just seems a bit of an odd idea why didn't we decide to have minutes that were 100 seconds long? There's a sense that 100 seconds is a little bit too long for a minute. But why is that? Is that a cultural thing? Is it something built within us that we do that fits into a minute? And why an hour as well? Is there a sense an hour is somehow a length of time where we can do something specifically. So I don't really have answers to these questions, but they are curious questions. And I'm sure I could delve down into the research about where did seconds and minutes come from and maybe there would be some answers to be found there. But at the moment I'm just asking those questions. And then we get 24 of these hours into our day. See, the day itself is not something that's random. The day is something that's selected by the fact the rotational speed of the Earth and a little bit affected by how long it takes for the Earth to go around the Sun. Now there we do come into a slight disjuncture, but not a great one. More or less, for example, um, the Earth goes round the Sun in about 365 and a quarter days. So if we were strictly going to start the day, the new year, we wouldn't start it at 12 o'clock one year would start it at 6 in the morning, the next year 12 noon, and the next year 
we'd start it at six o'clock in the afternoon. Maybe we should do that. Don't know. But our workaround for this is to create the idea of leap years. So we have this extra day that we add on every four years. And we do it in, at the end of February, which is odd. <laughs> Why don't we just do it at the end of the year? It'd be easier. So I have 32 days in December, let's say. Or just create this odd day, you know, so here. This is our four, four yearly odd day. We're just gonna throw it in there. So we're talking about time. <clears throat> we're talking about time, how we perceive time. And time, can you feel time? Can you touch time? Maybe you can see the results of time. But time as a concept is, is quite an odd one, really, because it's not something we can really directly physically touch, if you think about it. We have it as a concept in our heads, and I've just described to you where that concept comes from. More or less a second being a heartbeat, but then a day being almost like the heartbeat of the planet as it rotates. And the year being a heartbeat, another type of heartbeat of our planet, as it goes round the sun and comes back to its initial position. Now, of course, it's quite arbitrary. I mean, fair enough measure the cycle of the movement of one object around another but where we choose to start that is fairly arbitrary and we do it certainly in the western world our tradition has been to start that year in the midwinter not completely exactly on the shortest day, because the shortest day comes in the Northern Hemisphere around about the 21st of December, and yet the new year is until the 30th. So we can see that there's this interaction between us as humans and time and that interaction happens at the scale of our solar system because for whatever reason the Earth has come to rotate around the Sun in a certain amount of time and we've been able to make these divisions of how the Earth rotates on its axis in relation to that and it just so happens it more or less comes out to be this 365 and a quarter days and there's a few seconds here and there where it goes off but we won't worry too much about that so that's our definition of a year it's a it's our solar system our Earth-Sun year, if you like. 
period of time in which a particular cycle repeats and the way we see that cycle repeat. Again, that wouldn't necessarily have to be a given, but it so happens that our planet has got a slight incline. So it doesn't go around the sun with its axis pointing, if you like, um, perpendicular to the sun. It doesn't do that. If it did do that, then if you were at the, uh, the equator, the sun would always go directly overhead every day. And it does do that twice a year. In the northern hemisphere, we never see the sun. Well, I'll cl clarify this. If we're above 23 degrees north of the equator or 23 degrees south of the equator, we never see the sun overhead. It's always at a slight angle and will always be for that reason, either if we're in the northern hemisphere, it will be in the south. If we're in the southern hemisphere, it will always be in the north. Now, historically speaking, human beings have always have tended to be in the north of the equator. In fact, even to this day, if you do the head count, the majority of human beings live north of the equator. I don't know what the exact number would be. Something like 80%, I'm going to guess. We can check that. <clears throat> um, and when I say historically, what I am saying is that... Um, Certainly, in recent history, that's been the case. But actually, if we go a little bit further back, we find that historically, human beings may well have been at some point, or at least our ancestors may well have been a Southern Hemisphere species. We can look back through the origins of the human species and our current best understanding is that we grew out of a set of species that were in the southern part of Africa, below the equator. And at some point we moved, we migrated north, first of all through into North Africa and then we migrated into modern day Europe and Asia and then we may have also moved to Australasia a bit later on and then into into the Americas as well so that's the migratory pattern of our ancestors and we can talk about the detail of that what do we mean? How, how um, human were we through that process in time? But that's really, in a sense, for me, quite immaterial. 
Because again, we're getting back to this idea, this particular idea, where we need to identify things and name things. When sometimes the names we come up for, or come up with, for things, are quite arbitrary. In fact, I would say nearly all the time. We know this because look at how many times we've had to reclassify things that we thought we knew in new ways with new information. Um, a good example would be the thing that's happened over the last 20 or so years where we've been able to actually look at a species from a genetic standpoint where we've been able to say ah no longer do we just have to look at the phenotype so the phenotype is the the physical representation of a species so in humans you know stands on two legs um, more or less straight back uses hands to manipulate things has relatively big brain on top of um, pectoral girdle which lies on top of the pelvic girdle enables the animal to walk around using less energy than other animals that sort of thing has two eyes, nose, all this sort of thing the descriptive detail of a species so we've been able to we've known phenotypes for years of course because we have eyes we can look at them and over the years we've had different classification systems based on usually on whether things look like each other yeah what's been curious about the last 20 or so years where we've been able to actually look into the dna the genetics as we call it of these different animals is that we've been able to look very deeply into how they come to be as they are and what that has done is it's created some a few surprises and the specific surprises that it has created is are to do with the fact that we suddenly discover Oh, actually, um, some species of animal and plant that we thought were quite closely related turn, turns out to be completely unrelated. They just look similar. So that idea that things can be inside, internally, one thing, and externally, another thing. Is quite a curious idea and we can apply that idea in many different ways now that particular idea of there being this external view of something which maybe has a different internal view is interesting to me and I connect that idea up to the idea of the person or in Spanish la persona 
or tracing that word back to the original Greek. I say original, but it may well have had an earlier interpretation that we're un unaware of. But going back to the use of the idea of persona, we actually come to Greek theatre. Greek theatre, I guess we're talking about 450, 500 years BCE, which is the new terminology for those who aren't aware of before the current era, as opposed to before Christ, which was the BC nomenclature. So we're talking about 2,500 years ago, which in, in sort of civilization terms seems a great age, but in cosmic terms is very a small amount of time. And we have the Greek theatre. Now, if you've ever been to Greece and you've ever seen any of the theatres, then you probably may well be aware of it anyway. So at that time, at least the theatres that have uh, have remained, or at least the relics have remained, um, were, first of all, outside. Secondly, made of stone, tears, in a kind of a semicircle normally. And um, a bit like, actually, if you look at them, the ends of a stadium in a way. It's almost like um, you'd look at the sports that would have happened around Greek times. As I understand it, the stadia that would exist would have been a bit like two theatres at either end with some straights. So it was almost like it, one idea is the adaptation of another. And theatre in some way connects with sport. Now, my understanding is that actually when they had the so-called Olympic Games around that time, competitions were not just along the lines of sport, but were also along the lines of theatre and all sorts of different events, like an international competition, which I think, I don't know if there's anybody from the Olympic Committee listening, but that would be a fantastic thing to do have events in literature, poetry, anything you care to think of. I think the Olympics could be that sort of thing, but it would have to, uh, we'd have to move somewhat, somewhat away from the idea that the modern Olympic movement has created, which is about, primarily about sport. But I think it would be a great thing if cultural games were had as well. Not just cult, when I say culture, I mean any aspect of modern living, competitions, you know. So, and maybe we're moving that way, but that's kind of an aside. So where was I? Yeah. So back in the time of these theatres, um, and this is my imagination working here. Not perhaps verified necessarily by evidence. 
but they, if you look at these theatres, first of all, the people at the back of the theatre are quite a long way away from the stage. I imagine the theatres were created in this way, almost because the um, harmonics and the acoustics were very good. Though I'm sure a sound engineer would have an opinion on that. Um, but nonetheless, I think if you were sitting at the back and it was a full house for these performances, you probably would find it quite difficult to hear. And this may explain why many Greek theatre there have the chorus, because you can hear a chorus from the back. And then you would have had, you would have had some actors presenting as characters and they would have had to have tremendous projection in order to, for their voices to reach the back of the seating area. Now the thing is, in order to project in such a way, um, you're probably going to lose some of your fidelity of language. Well, either of language, so you want the words to be clear, or of character. So if you ever look back into the archives of actors going back about a hundred years ago, um, some of the existing, uh, the, the, um, the footage of them, early film, you might find some of their acting quite wooden. And I think there is a kind of a reason behind that, which is if you're acting on a stage, um, you need to be able to project your voice. And that's the focus of what you're doing. The other thing you might want to do is to have a very physical performance. So this, to some extent, explains the physical performers of the time, such as Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin, because you can also convey a message through a physical performance. Now, it's probably very likely, uh, again, where's the evidence that the Greeks would have had some sort of physical performance as well, unless theatre was a kind of more of a formal exercise of storytelling and maybe person standing up and narrating and or using oratory was, was the name of the game. So maybe it was not as physical. We don't, well I don't know, maybe there is some evidence to suggest that they were more physical, I don't know. But um, I'm sort of telling a long story here to get to a point here and that was the origin of the word person, persona. And the personae, you see them, dramatis personae, were the characters, basically, within the play. Now, because of this difficulty of communicating over large distances, and the need, actually, to communicate to large distances, because you want to have the maximum crowd, 
So your ability to project, maybe physically interact with the audience was important. So what was often done to represent characters was the wearing of a mask. And the masks themselves became known as the personae. So I'm quite interested in the, in the fact that through theatre, this idea of personae was developed. And that's come into our modern understanding as a, pers a person, people, person, people. We tend to equate it with a human. But what I want to do so I want you to think about that word person. And I want us to be a bit more creative in our understanding. And I want us to think about the fact that um, these masks were essentially representations of characters. And that I want you to think about the world around us, these objects that I've been talking about, these particles, as being characters in their own right and as things that we can describe as being personae or persons. And the reason I want you to think about these things in such a way is because I believe, and I'm coming to the end of what I'm going to say in this particular podcast, I believe if we can see every object in the universe as a persona, as a person, it's not then much of a stretch of the imagination to expand those smaller objects or compress those larger objects into something about the size of ourselves or maybe a bit smaller if we wish so that we can look at them in the social space that we have around us and by doing that We effectively bring all of the world and all of the particles, all of the characters, all of the personae, all of the persons into a space that we can then begin to ask questions about. So in other words, and I've run over a little bit here. But in other words, what I'm asking you to think about is taking everything that we think about as knowledge, as understanding, anything you like, even some things that maybe we don't consider in that way at the moment. And I want you to think about them as objects that we could literally pick up, we could put on the table, and we could have a look at and think about.
Or, even more interestingly, maybe slightly larger objects that we could put on the sofa opposite us. These personae. And we could have a conversation with them. Anything you can think of. And when I say anything, I also want you to think in a slightly different way. Um, I'm always reminded of a Shakespearean quote that is often quoted, to be or not to be, to be or not to be. Quote from Hamlet, written by Shakespeare, quite, in a sense, quite a dull, unimportant quote. To be or not to be. Six words. And all it's saying is, should I be or should I not be? In that context, it's often been interpreted that Hamlet is talking about, and Hamlet is the person who sends, is talking about whether he's going to commit suicide, which is quite a, a harrowing idea. He's, in a, he's, a, he's only a late teen, early 20s, quite a young man or woman in modern presentations. But he doesn't, he's in a difficult position and he's feeling really depressed. Or is he? Is it an act? We don't know. But we think that maybe he's feeling a little bit down and therefore he's just saying, I don't know what to do, you know. We all, we all get there, we all get to a point in life where we think, ah, oh God, why am I here? What am I doing? Um, but I want you to think about that phrase, to be or not to be, which is in some ways a bit of a throwaway. And just to change one word in it, change to be to to do. To do or not to do. Now, in changing from to be or not to be into to do or not to do, we've altered the meaning of that sentence. But we've also done something quite interesting, I think. Because we've changed the idea of being into the idea of doing. And that change might seem unimportant. But for me, it is absolutely fundamental to the way we see the universe and the way we, we see ourselves. And the reason I say that is because in one sense, we as individuals do not exist. And what I mean by that is, what, can we wrap a, police, a piece of clean film around ourselves? I mean, I wouldn't recommend doing this, but if we were to wrap clean film around ourselves, what would happen? Well, the first thing that would happen is we would suffocate. In fact, I believe it to be quite close to a, a form of torture. 
Now, if that doesn't tell us something about what's going on, then I don't know what is. We are not discrete individuals from our environment. We are continuous with our environment. We must be. Maybe we get this idea that we are above our environment, that the environment, when I use the word environment, I mean literally the stuff around us, rather than perhaps talking about whether it's narrow or broader, I don't know, the sense of the environment in terms of the planet, etc. I'm talking about the stuff that's around us, which we kind of take for granted, don't we? We say, oh, there's air, okay, fine. It's only when you go out into outer space where you realise there is no air that you start thinking, ah, okay, hmm becomes important. So we are constantly interchanging ourselves with our environment. The most obvious thing is breathing. To talk, I need to take in air, expel air. If there was no air around me, I wouldn't be able to talk. And within a relatively small amount of time, I would no longer be living. So we're constantly interchanging ourselves with the environment. So in that sense, we do not exist. We, or let's say me, I, there, there is no I. There is only a sense in which we are part of our environment. And that's really important because then we become not an object. To be clear, when I say an object, could be subject-object if you're thinking in sort of English language terms. A thing, again, I'm not trying to draw any distinction between here, living, non-living. A thing that is interacting with the environment. And you might say, well, what about a table? A table doesn't interact with its environment, does it? Doesn't it? What if you have a wooden table and you light a fire underneath it? It's going to be interacting with the environment a lot at that point, isn't it? And even without the fire, a wooden table will be absorbing and desorbing moisture with the environment, the air will be interacting with it, the sun may be casting onto it and heating it up and cooling it down through the day. And that goes for anything. We can't really move away from the idea that we are in interacting with our environments. Everything is. We don't see it, but it's happening. At our scale of sentience, um, we don't see a bridge rusting. You need to look at a bridge and say, that bridge seems okay. But if you left the bridge for a hundred years, a thousand years, 
it would slowly decay unless it had extremely amazing protection and even then something would happen um, so that's the point I'm trying to make we are not beings as such we are doings <laughs> which sounds a bit strange in English because doings is also sometimes um, correlated with going to the toilet but anyway we are what we do describe a human being as I did earlier what did I say right, he's got two legs um, he's got a belly <laughs> he's got two arms blah, blah, whatever I said but what really is a human a human is what he does or she does or they do that is what a human being I was going to say is a human being does a human being walks on two legs um, and think about that because if you think about what a human being does rather than what a human being is then suddenly your perspective changes and you say ah so what's a human being doing now the human being is doing working strange what is this working we're talking about what is this working what does it mean to work I think if you went to one of our ancestors going back a few thousand years and you described to them what work was in the modern sense they'd probably look at you as though you were mad work what you get up in the morning you go you spend eight hours in an office is it what's an office you sit down in a little you sit down in a little cubicle I'm describing generic work here some of some of you will have different experiences and you sit down and you think about things for and then you you've got a thing called a computer and what oh you, you send information to each other and what does that information do oh okay sometimes not very much oh right that's interesting does it do anything in the end ah okay I think if we go back far enough, most people would be, most humans would be saying, I don't really understand this concept of work. Um, I mean, if we go back far enough, most humans would just be familiar with the concept of survival, because that was the key thing. And we've created over the years these different ideas, haven't we? The idea of work, the idea of play. The idea of uh, industrialization, all these different concepts have all come about. And again, we stick a nice wrapper around them and say, that's that, that's something else over there. And then we try, don't we? We have these conversations, we try to solve what's the problem of the modern age. 
How are we going to solve this? What are we going to do? We sit down. People write books, you know. I'm going to write a book about industry. Yeah. Nice thick volume about industry. Nicely referenced. Thousands of references. This is what people did in the past. This is what happened. Blah, blah, blah. This is our guide to the future. But all the way through this, what we're missing a little bit is our kind of obsession with things, labelling things, and then trying to get those labels to work together. Rather than doing what we should be doing, which is to think around concepts. And a concept is extremely important. Because a concept is not quite the same thing as a thing. A concept is like this slightly I was going to say an amalgam if you know what that is, an amalgam slightly um, distorted not distorted, that's the wrong word a slightly difficult shape or idea, you see? You see how I'm struggling with language to describe what a concept is? But it's amorphous, that's the word I was looking for. It's an amorphous thing that fits into the little nooks and crannies of our understanding. It's almost as though every concept there was was like a piece of Play-Doh and you stick another piece of Play-Doh next to it in an interesting shape and you've got different little pieces of Play-Doh sticking together different colours, different concepts and they all merge together into this big amorphous ball of concepts and they all run through each other and over each other and upon each other thousands, millions of these different concepts together. Some of them don't necessarily have an easily identifiable name. But if you did that, you would have this sort of big messy piece of Play-Doh. don't know how big it would be. As big as you want, really. But then if we took a slice through that big piece of Play-Doh with all its different concepts running through it. And we had a look at that slice. I think what we would see would be quite interesting. Because I think what we would see would be something a little bit, perhaps, in some way, like taking a cut through a human body maybe 
or through a human brain or through that of an animal or through a plant or through anything you care to mention any of these objects that we're talking about any object if we went down and dug in with enough detail perhaps we would see something like that piece of play-doh and I suppose that is really the point I'm trying to get to we could scale this up to the size of a society or the cosmos or we could scale it down to a subatomic particle We can take the scale wherever we want, but essentially what's happening is the same thing. Stuff is doing stuff. And therefore, that stuff is not what it is, but what it does. An electron, for example, taking it down to the small scale, is not an electron. No, it's a wavy particle. So if we think about things in those terms, electrons, a wavy particle, um, maybe that's a good way to think about everything. Maybe we're all wavy particles. Um, we are what we do. Okay, that's all for now. Exactly on the 50. <laughs>